Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Oh my goodness. Okay, today's story has all the things that I love and fear. By all accounts, the woman in our story was nothing short of a southern belle. She talked the talk and walked the walk. And so when police discovered who she really was and what she'd been doing, Jaws dropped, you guys. We got it all today, folks. Murder, fraud, identity theft, a cross-country escape, and a crazy ending. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and if you haven't already, please go follow my social medias. I'm on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube as Storytime Slayer, and my Instagram is story underscore time underscore slayer. If you'd like to support my podcast, you can do so by leaving me a five-star review and rolling in listener support buy some merch, or just give me a like and a share. Thank you so much for being here and let's dive in. I will put my merch store in the podcast notes. Okay, seriously though, let's get started. Our story starts in Alabama. Audrey Marie Frazier was born during the Great Depression and always had her eye on a higher prize. See, she came from a lower class family, but her parents spoiled her and made sure that she dressed really nicely and had really nice things. So she became a brat. Audrey, who actually went by Marie, her middle name, I think anyway, because she's referred to a lot by her middle name. Anyway, she always wanted more. She wanted to be a part of a higher social class than she grew up in, so she learned to act the part. She was very personable, fashionable, friendly, and very, very charming, to the point of being borderline manipulative. She was by all means a southern belle and always looked the part. In high school, Marie met Frank Hilly. He also was popular like Marie. They married in 1951 and moved to Anniston, Alabama. November of 1952, they had their first child, a son named Michael. I don't know exactly what Marie's job was, but seeing how it said that she worked for higher members of society within their community, I'm assuming she did some sort of clerical work for them. The couple was accepted into a sort of well-to-do circle of members of society, something Marie had always longed for. So January 14th of 1960, the couple has a second child, a daughter named Carol. And that same year, they move into a bigger, better, and nicer home. So we're moving on up. Carol said her younger years with both her parents, Fred Marie, were really good times. She seemed to be rather fond of her father. However, as she got older, the relationship between her mother and her were a bit strained. Carol said in an interview her mom didn't seem to like anything about Carol. She didn't like Carol's clothing choices, friends, what she said, how she spoke, nada. Carol was not a Southern Belle. She was more of a tomboy. Marie cared a lot about image and Carol just didn't quite fit Marie's Southern Belle mold. Everything's normal as can be until May of 1975 when Frank gets really sick with an undiagnosable illness. In fact, he gets so sick, he's unable to work. His face takes on a, quote, ashy tone and blood red eyes, end quote, according to his daughter, Carol. And so they end up having to take Frank to the hospital. I think he goes in and out of the hospital a couple of times. And then he eventually dies two days after his last hospital admission on May 25th. 
Carol said that's when everything in her life changed drastically. So Frank did have an autopsy performed that his wife approved of, and there were definite signs of hepatitis. So doctors concluded this contributed to his untimely death and his body was released and the family had a funeral. Now, fortunately, Marie had taken out a life insurance policy on Frank around the time he'd gotten sick, Uh and she received a little over $31,000. So the family does their best to move forward. The couple's oldest son, Michael, he gets married, becomes a minister, and moves to Florida either like right before or following his father's untimely death. Now, with the life insurance policy, Carolyn Marie move. $31,000 is a lot of money in 1975, but don't worry, not too much for Marie to freaking fly through. On a side note, following Frank's death, Marie is said to have made a few phone calls to police requiring them to come do home checks. Now, she would report like people were threatening her life or that she thought somebody was stalking her. I don't have any exact exact reports but I I did see in an interview that the investigator said that she would literally call the police and make these claims and then they would have to come out to her house and check on her and they could never find anything to substantiate any of these threats on Marie's life and they concluded that she was probably lying for attention so anyway Marie flies through the money from Frank's life insurance within just a couple of years And then in the spring of 1979, her daughter, Carol, has prom. Her mom seemed to really take pride in getting her tomboy daughter ready and all fixed up for prom. But it was not the perfect night most teens dream of because Carol gets really, really sick. Now, she does recover and reports her a little bit conflicting, but I'm pretty sure the following weekend... Carol ends up getting really sick again and this time she has to be hospitalized. Now the doctors literally run every test they could think of and are totally bamboozled as to what is causing Carol's illness. Carol said that at first her feet tingled and then they tingled all the way up to her knees and she seemed to have some sort of weird extensive nerve damage making her unable to walk. How terrifying. Carol's situation was not a minor illness either. It wasn't just the leg tingling. She was very, very sick, like on the verge of death. It was very similar to her father's sudden inexplicable illness. In fact, Carol's aunt Frida, okay, so Carol's aunt Frida is Frank's sister. So that makes her Marie's sister-in-law. So now that we know who Frida is, she found it really suspicious that Carol's illnesses were so similar to her brother Frank's before he died. In fact, Frida recalled that Marie insisted on nursing Frank back to health herself for a while, and she was giving him injections of some sort to make him better. So Frida began to wonder if Marie was possibly the one making both of them sick, and if she was injecting them with something that would hurt them, right? So then Frida is like, you know what? I'm going to call my nephew, Mike. So she calls Carol's brother, Michael. And if I understand correctly, Frida mentioned to Mike about how when Frank was sick, Marie was giving him injections. And she sort of like bounced around or insinuated that maybe Marie made Frank sick from the injections and that she was possibly doing the same thing to Carol. So Mike immediately calls his sister, Carol. And Mike asked Carol if their mom had been giving her any shots. And Carol said no. 
Now, Carol said no because her mom was actually in the hospital room with her right at that moment. So then Mike asked Carol, do you promise? Like, do you promise she's not giving you any shots? And according to Carol, she again said no. And I think that is a way of Carol to tell her brother, like, I mean, yes, she, I I can't promise that she's not giving me shots, right? So that's kind of her way of how she could tell her brother Mike what was happening without really alerting her mom to anything. See, Carol's mom was giving her injections. While Carol was bedridden at the hospital, Marie said they were to help Carol be able to walk again. Hmm. After Carol told Mike she couldn't promise her mom wasn't giving her injections, he hangs up and immediately phones the hospital where Carol's at and tells them he believed his mom was giving Carol injections. And the hospital was adamant that they had authorized no such thing. So now the hospital's tracking. Next, Mike calls the police and tells them everything and how he thinks his mother is trying to harm his sister. The police were already investigating Marie due to a spree of hot checks that she'd been writing. So at least they have a reason to arrest her and get her away from Carol. So it's September 19th of 1979 and police go to the hospital where Carol was a patient so they can find and confront Marie. Marie tells her daughter that she is being arrested for writing hot checks and then escorted out by the police. In the meantime, Carol gets transferred to a different hospital and a different doctor examines her. Now, she's at the University of Alabama Hospital. By the way, this doctor was aware of possible unauthorized injections being administered to Carol, and he'd actually seen the damage arsenic poison can do firsthand, which isn't super common. The doctor said that he could immediately tell by examining Carol's fingernails and the roots of her hair that she'd likely been poisoned with arsenic. I believe it's likely the dead cells because he checked her hair roots and her fingernails and they had a noticeable line. So in the fingernails from arsenic poisoning, there will be a noticeable line on the fingernails and it actually creates a ridge. You can feel it with your fingertips across the nails. So they order a blood test and the results were undeniable. Carol had for sure been poisoned. The levels of arsenic were high and caused from intentional poisoning. So we know Marie was injecting Carol, but she was also feeding her daughter baby food while she was in the hospital. So they think Marie likely used roach poisoning to obtain the arsenic and was mixing it into the baby food as well as into an injection. Arsenic poisoning is a very cruel and painful death. You become incredibly weak, your limbs gradually become numb, and you are unable to walk. Plus, it is extremely painful on your body, and it only gets worse and worse. So Mike, Carol's brother, starts putting the pieces together, and he writes a letter to the Alabama district attorney outlining his father Frank's untimely and inexplicable death that could very well likely be arsenic poisoning by his mother, Marie. So the police actually investigate this and request to exhume Frank's body. Meanwhile, they bring these accusations to Marie, who is, remember, in police custody for hot checks. And police are like, why the fuck would you poison Carol? And of course, Marie says she didn't poison her. She claimed that Carol was nauseated, so she gave her a shot of anti-nausea medication, and that's what was in the injection, nothing more. Interesting because she told Carol supposedly that the injection was to help her walk again. That's what Carol says in a later interview. 
So Marie is obviously lying. At this point, Marie is kept in custody, but just for check fraud. Here's the thing about Marie. When I say the woman was a Southern belle, oh my God, was she a Southern belle. She dressed impeccably, but so impeccably, it was obvious that she spent a lot of money on her appearance. Police began wondering about her finances, knowing Marie was obviously spending a lot of money, but not bringing in a lot of money. Police do some digging and find out Marie took out a $25,000 life insurance policy on Carol shortly before Carol became sick. Coincidence? No, too coincidental. For one, most parents do not take out life insurance policies on their seemingly healthy children. Two, huh, she just so happened to do this with Frank too right before he got sick? So the theory is that she ran through Frank's insurance policy and needed more money. So she was just going to do to Carol what she did to Frank, take out a policy and then poison her daughter. October 3rd, 1979, the autopsy performed on Frank comes back. Now he'd been dead about four years, but his body was well preserved. And the results indicated that Frank was for sure killed with arsenic poisoning. He was pumped full of it. The police speak to Frida and they said Frida was adamant that Marie had to be responsible for the poisonings. So Frida took it upon herself to snoop around in Marie's house while Marie was in jail and she found pill bottles in Marie's basement. Frida brings these bottles to police and they test positive for arsenic. So remember earlier when I said Marie would call police constantly after Frank died to report threats against her life and stalkers and everything, but police thought it was fabricated and she was doing it for attention? Okay, well, Marie, being the Southern Belle that she was, she always had food and refreshments for officers. And the police thought back and they realized officers always coincidentally became sick after leaving Marie's house. Looking back now, they believe she was probably lacing food and drink with arsenic. Is that not crazy? Is that not crazy though? So now police start combing through people who know or were acquainted with Marie. And apparently a lot of people around Marie would get sick, like friends, neighbors, colleagues, acquaintances, really anyone. It seemed like she had some sort of weird enjoyment with inflicting poisoning like a hobby october 9th 1979 police gather all this evidence up and they actually charge marie for the attempted murder of her daughter carol and then a couple months after that while she's in jail she's indicted for the murder of frank via poisoning marie is actually offered bail and after two months in jail she's released on a bail close to fourteen thousand dollars Her lawyer doesn't want anybody to have any contact with her, so he puts her up in a hotel room. Obviously, if she goes to her house, the media and the sleuths are going to hound her and she may say something. But the next day, when the lawyer goes to check on Marie, she's gone, and there's a note in her room. The note indicated that Marie had been kidnapped, and it threatened that no one better come looking for her. But the attorney takes one look at this note and he goes straight to the police. The police analyze it and they compare it to Marie's handwriting. I guess they found like a letter or something. And it was so eerily similar that it fooled nobody. Marie was obviously just running off and had left a fake kidnapping note to try and throw him off her trail. So police decide to contact FBI and they put out a bolo of Marie nationwide and even in Canada. It has a photo and a description of the young woman. So that's it. Marie vanishes for years. 
then four years later, something that would seem completely unrelated happens. And as I would say, the universe aligned. So January of 1983, all the way in Vermont, the police get a very weird phone call. Co-workers of a woman named Robbie Homan called Vermont police and said that their co-worker Robbie came to work looking a little different. Her hair was bleached and her makeup was different. Robbie then told the women that she had been working with for a few years that she actually wasn't Robbie. She was Robbie's identical twin sister, Terry Martin. According to this air quote, Terry woman, Robbie died and Terry came to Vermont to comfort her brother-in-law, aka Robbie's husband, John, and Terry actually ends up moving in with John and is coming to work in place of her deceased sister. How bizarre is that, right? Like when somebody dies, your coworkers don't just wait for a replacement, even if you're a twin. <laughs> Terry's coworkers found this story extremely far-fetched and did not believe it was Robbie's twin at all. They suspected it was Robbie and that Robbie had made up this elaborate lie pretending she was her own twin. Weird. That's the weirdest thing I've heard in a while. So police are very confused. Now, according to this Robbie woman's boss, Robbie Homan had started working for his company in October of 1980. And Robbie told everyone that she was from Texas and married to a man named John. Robbie was very friendly and personable. She got along very well with others. And then in the summer of 1982, Robbie tells co-workers that she has an extremely rare blood disease that requires a special treatment. So she'll be going to Dallas for this treatment. And Robbie says without the treatment, she will die. So a couple months go by and this Terry woman shows up claiming to be Robbie's twin because Robbie died from her supposed blood disease. And Terry is now going to, I guess, just completely take over Robbie's life. But the co-workers took one look at Terry and they were like, no, dude, this is not a fucking twin. This is Robbie. And everyone was wondering why she was pretending to be her own twin and hence why they called the police. Before making any sudden moves or connections, police just look into this Robbie Homan story. They find an obituary which states when and where this Robbie woman died and had been buried. I'm assuming they got the obituary from like Robbie's co-workers or boss, but I'm not sure. And police try to first just contact this supposed funeral home and burial place to find that none of them exist. And they're like, wow, this is a really weird case of identity theft. They call the FBI for assistance, and in the meantime, investigators confront this Terry Martin woman. They actually approached her in the parking lot of what I'm assuming is the company she was working at, and Terry immediately admitted that she was not, in fact, whom she said she was, and she agreed to go to the police station and straighten everything out. And if you haven't guessed already, Terry Martin ain't Terry or Robbie. <laughs> It's Marie. Yeah, at the police station, the woman gives police her real name, Audrey Marie Hilly from Anniston, Alabama. The reason she was hiding her identity was because she had a warrant out for her arrest in Alabama for writing hot checks. Which, I mean, that's not a complete lie. That's one of the reasons. Of course, the name doesn't just ring a bell immediately, but FBI run it through their database and reports on her just start printing out like hotcakes. 
Police and the FBI investigators are flabbergasted about what they're seeing. This petite and polite Southern Belle, who in no way seemed like a fugitive, was actually at large and wanted for murder. When police confront Marie, she is willing to talk about anything and everything having to do with this identity theft, but she will not talk about the charges against Frank and the attempted murder of Carol. So she tells them about her ruse of being Robbie and Terry, but that's it. Police extradite her to Alabama where the warrants were. And next, police question Marie's husband, John. Yeah, I was surprised to find out that John actually existed. For some reason, I thought he was going to be part of her lie. But John Homan was completely clueless as to any sort of hoax. He met Marie after she started using the name Robbie and had no idea about her past or anything. So according to John, he and Robbie met at a bar in February of 1980 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But Robbie really hated Florida and wanted to go somewhere that snowed. So the couple decided to move to New Hampshire and start their life together. They buy a home and they get married May 1981. By the summer of 1982, Robbie also informed John that she had a rare blood disease and needed to go to Dallas to stay with her twin sister while she underwent treatment. John is extremely easy peasy and just says, okay, and like off she goes. After several months, Robbie's twin Terry calls John and tells him that Robbie has died. But Terry says she'll travel up there to see John because that is what Robbie wanted. Within days, this Terry woman was at John's doorstep. Marie had bleached her hair and applied her makeup differently. I also noticed that her eyebrows were significantly thinner. I don't know if it was makeup or if she overplucked them to change the appearance. And John thought, wow, she looks like Robbie. But according to John, Terry starts living with him. And when police asked John point blank if he thought Terry was Robbie, even after she'd lived with him, he was like, no. Unfortunately, John really had no idea. So police are eventually able to get John to actually swallow this news that Terry is Robbie. And Robbie is a woman named Marie. And she's going to be extradited to Alabama where she's wanted for the murder of her husband, Frank, and attempted murder of her daughter, Carol. And John, oh my gosh, he absolutely did not believe his wife was capable of that. Identity theft, sure. Pretending to die and move in as his deceased wife's twin, that's acceptable too. But murder, oh no, no, I draw the line. My sweet Marie would not do that. This guy is crazy. Investigators said they really felt bad for him because he so clearly had the wool pulled over his eyes. And I mean, they could kind of see how though, because Marie was very charming and hospitable. She carried herself with a high level of grace and class that John completely fell head over heels for. John actually stood by her and supported his wife even after she was extradited to Alabama to await the trial for murder of Frank and attempted murder of her daughter. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, he moved to Alabama and everything and got a job there. So May 30th, 1983, the trial begins for the murder of Frank Hilly and the attempted murder of Carol Hilly. The prosecutor's case was like very straightforward. Marie took out insurance policies on her loved ones, um, then poisoned them as a means to collect on the policy. The defense case was that this could have been anyone and Marie was obviously being set up. June 1983, the jury came back with 
guilty. She was found guilty for both the murder of Frank and attempted murder of Carol. So for Frank's murder, she gets life in prison. And then for Carol's attempted, she gets 20 years. Now, just because Marie was now a convicted killer does not mean she was any less manipulative and charming. Marie used her charms on the prison warden and she actually convinced them that she'd become framed and the warden believed her. So after just three years in prison, the assistant warden grants Marie a three-day prison pass, meaning that she can leave the prison unattended with any officers as long as she comes back in three days. My mind is blown. She's been in prison less than four years on a life sentence plus 20 years and gets a motherfucking day pass. Wow, Alabama. Wow. So she gets out on her day pass February 19th, 1987. Her husband, John. Yeah, you heard it right. John stood by Marie's side and he picked her up for her three day prison pass they go to a boarding place of some sort together. I don't know if it's a hotel, boarding house, motel, whatever. But they stay together during the whole three days. And then before it's time to go back to prison on the final day, Marie tells John that she would like to go visit her mother's grave. John waits for her at a nearby Waffle House. But then too much time passes. So John goes back to the room they'd rented and he finds a note from Marie. The note just professed Marie's love for John and says that he's her true love. But she cannot go back to prison and she's actually going to try to leave the country. John immediately contacts police who contact FBI. Of course, a bolo is sent out and search ensues for the convicted killer. The winter climate was harsh, though. It was very cold and snowy and ends up taking four days to find Marie. Apparently, up in Blue Mountain, Alabama, an area Marie was very familiar with because she grew up there. A woman looked out and saw somebody laying very still on her porch. And she could tell when she went out and looked that the woman had traveled very far on foot. The woman was lying on the porch. She's bruised. She's bleeding as if she's been cut from going through rough woods and terrain. So the homeowner calls 911. An ambulance comes out. And the woman is identified as Marie. And she's taken by ambulance to the hospital. But on the way there, she ultimately dies. Can you believe it? Some reports say she died of hypothermia. And some reports say of a heart attack. Either way, she succumbed to the elements and died. This case blew my mind. Ugh. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week. Bye.